0: Hey guys, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm so glad to be with you here again. I hope you had a great summer. I'm so looking forward to the season that we have ahead of us on the show. I have so many great interviews planned for you on all topics, but both the TV and film seasons this year are looking particularly great. Don't forget that you already now can check out my interview with one of my favorites, Succession's Jeremy Strong, ahead of season two of that show that's coming up in just a few days. That interview is already out there for you. And I hope that we'll get to talk a lot about the great Oscar season that seems to be ahead of us. There are films by Almodovar, by Scorsese, by Greta Gerwig coming up. And I felt compelled to start our season off by talking about the film that critics are saying is the first sure Oscar Best Picture nominee. That's Quentin Tarantino's epic tale Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, I have a long history with Tarantino. I even wrote my thesis on Pulp Fiction back in my film school days. Sure, I wrestle with him sometimes, some of the violence, some of his themes, but his films have continually blown my mind in one way or another. It's his absolute passion for cinema, pop culture, music, his nerdiness and his demand for accuracy. This all seems to come to a head in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his ninth and according to what he says, his second to last film, that's if you believe him. This film, even more than his previous ones, seems really personal. It takes place in Los Angeles in 1969, a moment in time between the hippie love movement and the gruesome Manson murders, where Hollywood was moving from cowboy pictures to Polanski. And the level of pop culture detail, Hollywood lore, and historical accuracy is why I decided to speak to not one, but two brilliant minds behind this epic movie. In part one, you'll meet Mary Ramus, Tarantino's longtime music supervisor who's worked with him for 27 years. She's helped make Tarantino's music cues and soundtracks a major part of his filmmaking and a major part of cinema history, really. And then in part two, coming up in just a few days, production designer Barbara Ling, who painstakingly and lovingly has recreated the late 60s Los Angeles from legendary restaurants and streets to landmarks and movie sets. It's like nothing you've ever seen. So buckle up for this two-part season opener of Pop Culture Confidential, all about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
1: I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. (laughs) All the shooting. (laughs) I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. night the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. And who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the Klutz. <laughs> Where there ain't no trees Charlie's gonna dig you
0: Once Upon a Time in Hollywood takes place in Los Angeles in the late 60s at the height of hippie Hollywood It stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton a former star of western TV series and his longtime stunt double Cliff Booth played by Brad Pitt They are struggling to stay relevant in a Hollywood on the verge of change Dalton's next-door neighbor is an up-and-coming movie star named Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie. And without spoiling the movie too much, Tarantino dives headfirst into an old Hollywood in its last heartbeats as it collides with counterculture and the horrifying Manson murders. As always in Tarantino's films, the soundtrack is meticulously curated. In this one, more than ever, it plays a huge part in the narrative. It's a backdrop for his cinematic passion and nerdiness. The radio, the California sound, the forgotten hits. And always there with him is music supervisor Mary Ramus, who adds her genius to the mix. From Reservoir Dogs and onward, they've collaborated And I just love Mary. She's really a genius and a passionate music connoisseur. Just a few years ago, I got to interview Mary for a masterclass at the Gothenburg Film Festival. I really recommend that you go back and listen to that to get the full extent of her work with Tarantino up to this one. You can find that on the site. Now, Mary has many roles in a Tarantino production, overseeing every musical moment, tracking down artists and writers, forgotten tracks that the director wants, securing rights, helping actors who have a musical number. And as you will hear, she has some incredible stories about her collaborations with Tarantino. The Quentin Music Room, how she convinces artists to be part of a Tarantino film, as well as how she's helped to locate musicians and artists that have fallen off the radar, and how working with Tarantino has helped them reconnect with publishers and with us, the filmgoers. Mary Ramus, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm so excited to talk to you again.
2: Thank you so much for having me again. I, I love your show, so... And it's always fun to talk to you.
0: Oh, thank you. I Just before we start with this incredible new movie, I'd like to just back up for a moment because in the wonderful part of the conversation we had last time when we were doing the master class was about this dream that you and Quentin had and the experience of working with Ennio Morricone on <laughs> The Hateful Eight. <laughs> One month after we talked, he won, which is incredible, his first ever competitive Oscar for that score. And I just wanted to know, uh, now that we're talking again, what did that mean? Mean for you all.
2: <gasps> that was oh, what did that mean? What did that mean? That was the biggest possible result that could have happened. I can't tell you what it was like to see to see Ennio get up and accept his Oscar, and you could tell that it you could tell that it meant so much to him to be honored by. His peers, and by his community, and by John Williams, and by Quincy. Jo- I mean, it was, it was bigger than big, and I, it's hard for me to describe it. But I know that that was really special for Quentin too. I mean, to be able to <clears throat> not only get a gorgeous score out of the man for his own movie, um, but to have it honored in that way was was it was amazing. It was amazing. And the Oscar goes to Ennio Morricone, the Hateful
1: Eight, my brother, Di Not too fancy.
2: This is the first Oscar and sixth nomination for Ennio Morricone. He also received an honorary award in 2006 in recognition of his magnificent and multifaceted contributions to the art of film music. You know, everything is very personal for Quentin. Every movie, because he's, you know, he's an auteur. He writes his own stories and he directs his own stories. So everything really is very personal and filtered through his own experience. I'm really just his, you know, Girl Friday, (laughs) really trying to help him achieve his dreams um, for these movies. And I'm stoked to be a part of history in this way, because I do feel like his films are going to last throughout history and, and maintain their um, their potency uh, in years to come.
0: Music is such a huge part of Quentin's artistry. His and your soundtracks, as you said, are legendary. I mean, the use of songs in, in Pulp Fiction just changed cinema, really. I remember my head exploding when that one came out, especially, in, and even Reservoir Dogs. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is kind of unique because uh, the f- filmmaking and music really play a part in the narrative, the radio, the music scene of the 1960s, so the musical connections with Manson. And so here you're really working with some historical context in a way that I feel that you maybe haven't been before. But So can you briefly tell us a bit about the music scene in L.A. in 1969?
2: I'll tell you about how it pertains to this movie. Quentin, you know, Quentin grew up in in Southern California and he grew up listening to the radio station that everybody was listening to at the time was boss radio, uh, KHJ 92 KHJ. Um, and, uh, he really started from that Genesis that, that, that was the Genesis of the idea for the tapestry of the sound in this movie. He really wanted that to be an, ongoing uh throughout the entire action that that radio would just be constant every character is listening to it every you know it's just constantly pouring out of car windows and you hear snippets of it everywhere um and it's we we were really lucky in that there is archival footage of this um archival audio footage of this, these, this radio station um, from 1969.
1: The real Don Steele, 93 K H J, 317 at K H J, totally intense. That's me, the real Don Steele. Simon Garfunkeling, Mrs. Robinson.
2: listening to the soundtrack because the soundtrack is a lot of this. It's, it's a souvenir of the film. So there's a lot of this that's in the soundtrack. So listening to the soundtrack actually acts like a time machine because you really feel like you're listening to radio Mm -hmm. in 1969 with these, you know, I mean, I have serious radio now and I, I, you know, listen to the radio from time to time, but my, you know, children don't listen to the radio. Um, but it's just a it's a so it's a real um, it's a real fun thing to be able to think about them listening to the soundtrack and experiencing what we all, you know, remember about radio.
0: And at the same time that this sort of fun radio, everyone was listening to the same thing, sort of L.A. scene. There was sort of a dark forces coming in, even to the music scene. I'm thinking of sort of. Um, Manson's love of this Helter Skelter Beatles and that sort of type. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, you know, and one
2: thing I also wanted to talk about was, um, you know, in the past, Quentin has um, wanted to be, you know, he, he hasn't been so rooted in the time period of his movies, like, you know, Inglorious Bastards, he, he used David Bowie. I mean, so he hasn't been so rigid about needing to be uh, rooted in the time period for the story. This one was different. Um, this one, he really felt like it was important to be there. Um, we were approached by artists. I mean, uh, you know, um, the the storyline and the time period really appealed to a lot of artists, and so we were approached by a few artists who were willing to do um, original songs or covers of songs oh, from the contemporaries. period.
0: contemporaries, yeah, that they wanted to be on. Yes, the
2: like Lana Del Rey, right? I mean, she's she would have been so perfect. Um, but that really wasn't the vibe on this movie. Um, so that's one thing that was really important. So we really stayed within the period using archival, um, audio from the radio and using songs that would have played at the time. But also, yes, uh, there is an element of the, the Manson, Sharon Tate connection. So there, so there was a little bit of that. There is, uh, there's a few, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders songs that are uh, featured in the movie. And that's kind of of historical importance because of Terry Melcher's involvement uh, and how he knew Charles Manson. Manson wanted to get, thought he was gonna get a record deal out of Terry Melcher. And they knew each other. Terry had hung out with Manson and his girls. And one of the murderers, Tex, had actually been to the Yellow Drive estate. So he knew the property. So there were, there's, there's that connection there. So uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders are, you know, featured in the movie and Terry Melcher had written a couple of the songs. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And also um, Straight Shooter by the, the uh, Mamas and the Papas, that, that was the um, sheet music that was found in the, in the home uh, on the piano. Oh, wow. a few uh, uh, rooted in reality historical things um, in, the, in the picture. And I, of note, there is one song that Charles Manson wrote that is sung by the, the girls. And I just want to say that before we even considered using it, there's a music publisher, by the way. Mm-hmm. And before we even considered using it, uh, I inquired about where the royalty money would go.
0: Oh, right. uh,
2: Because we did not want to have anything to do with Manson or anything. And uh, we were assured by the music publisher that there was a court case that um, uh, said any monies went to uh, the estate of one of the victims. No Manson family member, you know, real or supposed, has any kind of gain from the use of of that music. So that was important to know, you know.
0: It's been... 27 years, I believe, you've been working with Quentin now. You've basically you've been on all his movies. Um, do you guys have, like, a secret language at this point? Well, you know what? It's, it's,
2: it's kind of cool because I do know, I mean, I, I can anticipate um, how he's going to work and what he's going to need. I mean, this movie was so involved that, you know, there were so many moving parts and so many elements we usually have a lot more time together in pre-production than we did on this movie. So it was a benefit that I had worked with him so much because when he had last minute inspirations, like wanting to have Leonardo DiCaprio sing to a 1950s song, (laughs) you know, the following day basically, you know, I, I could anticipate what he was gonna need, what he was gonna want and have something created right away that I knew would work for him.
0: Well tell me about the, the listeners about that. Explain why that makes is a huge last minute request. Oh, well
2: okay, well it's it's a period piece again. So this is a nineteen fifties song and in order to have an actor sing uh, sing it realistically, what the scene is basically Leonardo is appearing on a show, a sixties show called Hullabaloo. And he's it's sort of like they did back in the day, like Michael Landon was on the show at one point, you know, and it's just these actors that just look kind of uncomfortable singing along with a pop track while these go-go dancers dance behind them. (laughs) Right. And uh, it was such a funny idea to have Leonardo's character, like just kind of singing along and smoking a cigarette while he's singing and having these girls dance around him. But in order to do that realistically, I needed to get a, what's effectively a karaoke track of, this 1950s song Green Door and you know there is no karaoke track so I had to have it created and have it created in an archival uh, fashion so that it sounded like realistically what they would have played on that television show but you know luckily I've been doing this for a while so I do have my people I have my <laughs> people who I know can deliver authentically sounding vintage tracks
0: that's why he has you I remember you describing that when he you start a process with him you basically go into like his music room
2: yeah his record room this is a really unique experience every director has a different process working with Quentin is because music is so essential like he when he's thinking about writing a screenplay he'll go into his record room for inspiration like when he was writing Jackie Brown he said he went into the, his record room and went into the soul section and just, you know, use that for inspiration. It was, it, it's, it's cool. How
0: big is his record room that he has different sections and everything?
2: Yeah, it's well, it's he kind of set it up like a record store. It's got different bins and different sections, <laughs> uh, and it's of course a lot of vinyl. It's a regular sized room. Gosh, I don't know dimensions, but it's probably like a guest bedroom that's literally filled with vinyl. And there's a couch in there, and I'll sit on the couch and he'll basically pace (laughs) and describe scenes to me and then he'll stop and go, okay. And then he'll go to the turntable and, you know, put the needle on the record. He'll search through some dusty (laughs) records and, you know, put a record on and like search for the right track and play it to describe a scene. So he'll basically set up needle drops like that um, to set the tone and set the vibe. I mean, as we go through, if there's, I need to fill in the blanks. I'll do that. But it's always really important to get his vibe when we start out. And again, like one of my major jobs on a Quentin Tarantino movie is to never let him down. I mean, to never let him down. I, I There's so much um, possibility for disappointment, you know, when you're working with music that's owned by big companies or owned by, you know, Individuals, you know, and especially with Quentin, a lot of things are deep cuts that are, you know, the writers, the songwriters have fallen off the map, you know, and it requires a lot of detective work to find them. Because sometimes if you call up a music publisher that's a very busy company, a very big, busy company, and you say, I'm looking for the rights to, you know, Treat or Write by Roy and the Traits, and they say, you know, well, one of the writers, we can't find one of the writers, so you're you know we can't let you have we yeah that's it we can't let you use it I can't then go to the greatest director in the world and say um sorry yeah sorry sorry you can't have it so it is it's imperative that I bring my a-game when I'm looking for things for him so I'll use anything at my disposal and back in the 90s, when we didn't have Google and we didn't have the internet, which also are not that, you know, thorough,
0: Right. No, was, I can imagine
2: extra work now, even now, you know, I'll use things like obituaries and, you know, mother's maiden names and uh, last known addresses and um, copyright searches and like all just various ways to like seek out um, the owners of the music so that I can, you know... Make my case. And then once I find them, right, once I find them, it's making the case and making a passionate case. Sometimes these people have never heard of Quentin Tarantino. And, you know, uh, and always I have to be upfront if there's going to be uh, violence in the scene because I don't want somebody to come to the theater or, you know, and be shocked at how something's used. So it's always a case for making, you know, a passionate plea to, to be able to use, you know, somebody's yeah
0: i remember you talking about how you wrote neil diamond a personal letter about um you'll be a girl you'll be a woman soon because of the whole heroin scene that that followed and and that that um, i can i can understand that that they you know where is my and at that point quentin wasn't even i mean he was just getting sort of started so
2: and yes and uh yeah and neil's publisher said nope first of all it wasn't you know, it wasn't the kind of money that he's used to getting. And so there was that. But there was also the scene description was, you know, um, she she ODs. She does drugs. I don't think she ODs during the song. She she does drugs during the song. They were like, nope, 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 nope. And so I had to write them a letter. And I really, um, I used to want to be a writer. So this is where I get to. <laughs> this is where, I get this to, where you shine. You know, so uh, because, and honestly, I do feel passionately about, these things if I didn't it it wouldn't it wouldn't be as effective but I really do believe passionately that the use of this music is important in this scene and here's why and and I think what I told you know Mr. Diamond was yes the character does drugs in this scene but it does not in any way glorify the use of drugs in fact she nearly dies from her folly right so the very next you know scene she's OD'd and she is near death so um you know, he it, it, it worked in that. Did you case. have
0: a particular challenge like that in this one? Because there's a few you know things that one can react to as.
2: <laughs> no, actually, there. No, this one was the, the the challenge in this one was the scope of the archival music, and really getting everything to work correctly. And there were a lot of there was a lot of last minute inspiration type situations that required quick turnaround and but i will say i mean there's a few things that required like there's a vanilla fudge song used in the movie that's super cool and we wanted to use a very specific edit of it that had never been released before and so it took you know speaking with carmine eppies from um vanilla fudge and and uh explaining and explaining it to you know the various representatives of the song i mean it's not every day that you go to a major company and say, hey, we want to rename your song and re edit it. Was that cool? <laughs> uh, that we were fortunate enough to have access to um, these cool artists that are still around and still making music. Carmen Peace is still traveling and still making awesome music. I just had lunch with him the other day, and uh, and he is a Quentin fan, and Quentin's a fan of Vanilla Fudge. So that was uh, a, a happy circumstance. That's another thing that I wanted to say. You know, I mentioned this before, but one of the things that's so fun and gratifying about working with Quentin is that the kind of the kind of thing that he does for actors of a certain stature, like that that haven't maybe done a movie in years or, you know, how he kind of revives certain careers. The same thing goes for the music that's that he chooses, you know. I mean I I've been able to see how his use of music has changed the trajectory for some of these recording artists. And it's been, it's been fantastic to see through the years, you know, and that's all I'll say about that. But I mean, there's many- so gratifying, You I've never, ever, you know, uh, uh, no, you know, ha- wouldn't have heard of in this, wouldn't have heard on a commercial for guys sakes, you know, uh, that have been, uh, kind of revitalized and had a different trajectory to their careers. And 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 I have to say that was fun to be a part of that because mm-hmm. that's been my mission too is that when somebody's fallen off the map, I'm not going to let them fall off the map. I'm going to try and find them and get them hooked back up to their, you know, source of revenue, right? If they're not mm-hmm. hooked up to their performing rights society and they've they've fallen off the map there, I find them, I dust them off and I get them connected back up with
0: Oh, I love that! How gratifying—it's an extra part of your.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's an
0: extra dimension. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's. Well, see, that's because you're so passionate yourself about music. Yeah. But take me back—you were back in Quentin's music room oh. now for ah! this movie. How how did he describe the vibe for this particular movie when you got into the room? You said that he always sort of tries to tell you the vibe. What what did he say about this one? Oh well,
2: this one is definitely. This one was definitely just about radio. Just about the constant tapestry of the sound in the background. Just, just it was going to be a constant and intermingled with the uh, sound bites from television uh, shows. Like you know, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole. You get to see the whole opening sequence of Mannix, which has an amazing opening, uh, opening title theme song. Which, you know, we never, you know, which, would you you, it's fun to remember.
0: Yeah. You don't see it anymore.
2: Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's hip and it's swinging and it's, you know, swagger. And so, um, you know, it's just an aural tapestry of 1969. Um, and that is how he described it. And we were lucky on this one too, in that we, um, we worked with a clip clearance company, Lauren Roberts, who, you know, was able to dot the I's and cross the T's with a lot of these archival things, too. So it was a, you know, it was a massive, unwieldy task.
0: Yeah, because you were you were mentioning this thing about needle drops, which it's just a little bit of a song here and there. How many songs would you say sort of in, even with the needle drops and the little, you know, TV, are there in this movie, actually? There's
2: about a hundred. Wow. Yeah, there's about a hundred. Mm. Um, and the other thing is, you know, he doesn't use score. Hateful Eight and Kill Bill accepted, and this one um, was unusual in that. He didn't He didn't use uh, a lot of Ennio Morricone in this one. He used Bernard Herrmann, who is, you know, who is the legend and was uh, one of the, you know, one of the film composers of the 60s. And, um, most notably for his work with Hitchcock. Uh, So we use a lot of Bernard Herrmann tracks from the time period. And one in particular, which is really cool, is a piece of score from the movie, the Hitchcock movie, Torn Curtain, which if you're a Hitchcock or a film nerd like moi, um, you know that that is the film that Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann broke up over. They only, uh, you know, uh, Hitchcock wanted a certain kind of score, And he told him that he wanted a jazzy score that the kids would like. And Herman said, no. And so Herman went in and started recording the score that he wanted to record for the movie with an orchestra. And Hitchcock came over to the recording stage and heard they only recorded three cues. Heard those cues, was livid, sent the orchestra home, even though the day had been paid for. And they broke up on the spot. And wow. so we are. To never work again. Never work together again. We uh, are using one of those never used score keys from Torn Curtain, which Bernard Herman record, uh, recorded at that fateful session. Um, and it's a really cool spot in the movie, oh which I'm not going to tell you because it's spoiled.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 but and not, and not to get too deep into this because I want to talk a little bit about how Quentin and you had used music in, in the choreographed violence. I mean, I'm thinking about the incredible Reservoir Dogs, you know, ear slashing scene, the shootout in Django Unchained. And here, just for a mild spoiler, there's of course a, a, a very huge ending to this movie, which, which, um tell me a little bit about how he talks about how what songs he wants in that type of particular scene that
2: is part of the passion <laughs> and it is uh, you know it's it's always important to let people who own the music um, know what our intention is um, how we intend to use it and um, you know and and sometimes that involves really detailing um, What's happening in, you know, detailing the violence that's potentially going to happen in the scene so that they know, for instance, on Django Unchained, I had to really go to the mat for um, us to use James Brown's The Payback in that um, Unchained mashup that we made for the movie, the Tupac James Brown mashup. Because, because when I gave it to Quentin, he was I, he you know was going to use it in a different place. But then, he mischievously <laughs> said, "Oh, you're going to love where I want to use this." And it's over the most bloodiest shootout in the movie. I mean, Django even uses a body as a shield at one point. I
0: mean, yeah. it's just... <laughs> we all remember this. <laughs> yeah. So. Um,
2: uh, so, and, uh, you know, the James Brown estate, rightfully, was like, no, we're not interested in having anything to do with over the top, you know, with, with violence. First of all, they said, can we see the scene? And no, because of, uh, you know, secrecy and, and piracy and all that stuff, we, we really can't show scenes from the movie. So it required me detailing um, and describing the, the action. And so I... I I described it uh, and let them know that there there was a reason for it being over the top, so over the top with the violence, because it has to mean something. It has to be that much more devastating when he finally surrenders, um, because it is a climax of the movie. And so um, that, I mean, so, and they, they let us use it because of that.
0: And how, what kind of music, what was this like?
2: This one was this one was less about uh, uh, explaining the violence. Um, I mean, I did
0: you know what?
2: Actually, I did have to describe this because the uh, the writers of the song are are famous Motown writers, Colin Dozier Holland. And uh, it required uh, really describing the scene to them and 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 letting them know how important it was. and they they agreed. Well, Vanilla Fudge, like I said, are are you know fans of Quentin's and so it was it was worthwhile to talk them through it, but also because we wanted to use a different type of an edit of their song, which has an amazing crescendo and introduction and we also wanted to release that particular version on the soundtrack, which had never been released before. So that was important. And and it was talking them through it. But yeah, that it 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 was because of my experience in the past, it was uh, a, a little bit of an easier, um, I was prepared this time.
0: They say, or he says, that this is like his second to last movie. Ah. So I'm going to pick your brain. Is this going to happen? Or are we, what is going on? That's
2: what goes on in his mind. I swear. Here's one of the coolest things about this movie. And I, I, I you know, it, it, he's always been super fun to work with. But this one was in particular even more fun because he got married during this movie, got married in post-production. He, he shot the movie and then got married. And he was like three feet off the ground during post-production, just happy, you know, giddy. I mean, it was really fun to, um, he's always funny, always loves making movies, but this one had a different, just a different feel to it. And I think also the fact that it was set in his hometown and had to do with a lot of things that he's just soaked up as a little kid growing up here from the movies to the TV to the to the uh, to the radio, I think and and the setting, I think all of this was very uh, important and very very personal for him, more so than any of his other movies. So that mm-hmm. was that was pretty fun about it.
0: Well, you can't let him go.
2: Yes, I can't let him go. But he he said in movies, he said or he said in in uh, interviews that you know this one might be his last and you know uh, who knows i think i think he has a ton more stories in him i think he's very obviously aware of his legacy he's aware of his fans he's aware of you know wanting to be relevant and you know he doesn't want to keep going and make anything that's not worthy of something he would want to watch so he's very aware of that kind of legacy
0: but what he's done and with the people around him, I mean, so much for cinema in general, not only with his movie theater, um, oh, yes! with this type of mo- where you guys are working with, you know, are such incredible archival, you know, bring, bringing musicians back and bringing, I mean, the, the amount of the scope of what he's sort of done for cinema... Already at such a young age, I, I can see that he's tired, but we, he can't go anywhere.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he's going anywhere. Honestly, between you and me, I don't think he's going anywhere. I think this is no. where he lives. This is what he loves to do. He loves to write, that's for sure. So if it's not cinema, then perhaps he will continue on in other formats or write novels, as he said. But he's got many more stories in him. I know this. Yeah.
0: Now, can I ask you what other things you're working on also besides Quentin? Because you're always super busy with other stuff as well. Oh,
2: I'm so excited. I'm I'm, um, I'm working on a, a limited series for FX uh, Network that's called Mrs. America, which mm-hmm. is about the women's movement in the 1970s. There was a really uh, effective fight for and against the Equal Rights Amendment, so we have Uh, Kate Blanchett playing Phyllis Schlafly and we have um, uh, Rose Byrne playing Gloria Steinem and there's a cast of like some of the best actresses around which is a very effective story about women's power in the first place because Phyllis Schlafly was the right-wing opponent of the Equal Rights Amendment and she herself was very strong very potent very dynamic leader of housewives who, you know, she uh, organized to uh, fight the movement.
0: So you're in 70s music here as well.
2: Oh, yes, yes. So it's a a lot of 70s music. It's it's such a cool time period because there's so much um, possibility that, and there's also the fun of delving into the kind of music that the right wing would listen to at the time, and there's fun delving into the kind of music that the various intellectual left wing, you know, would listen to. And then there's also the editorial type music that, you know, that you can throw in, you can sprinkle in throughout, you can't go too much with it, but sprinkled in throughout, you know, wives and lovers that, that, that famous, you know, song about, Hey, little girl, comb your hair, put on your makeup. Soon he will walk through the door, right? That song, can you believe it? That song was a huge standard hit. So many people, male and female, recorded that song, which is just astounding to me when you listen to the lyrics and think, oh my God, Julie London sang it and, and you know all these various people sang it.
0: Is that like next year or when can we expect to start seeing? That
2: comes out next year, we're shooting it right now. And then I'm also working on something with Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon, which is based on a bestseller by Celestine, it's um, called Little Fires Everywhere. It's uh, set in 90s. That's kind of fun. I'm, I've got these period pieces that I'm working on. Uh-huh. Um, so I've got I'm building up my my stacks over here of 60s and 70s, and I'm building up my stack over here. But I'm excited about that one too because we have a really unique um, scoring opportunity in that composer Mark Isham is doing the score mm-hmm. along with Isabella Summers from Florence and the Machine. Is it the Machine? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's gonna hopefully gonna work out super
0: cool that's amazing well mary it's always so much fun to talk to and maybe i can get back to you when one of those projects comes up i'd love it thank you so much Thank you so much to music supervisor Mary Ramis. And don't forget, in a few days, we'll have part two of the opening of Pop Culture Confidential Fall season with set designer Barbara Ling and her incredible work on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was edited by Julia Scott, and I'm Christina Yerling Biro.